The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll pick up where we left off Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And I would ask you to follow along as I read for us, starting in verse 3 through our text this morning, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Read along with me as I read from the ESV. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, may more precious than gold, though it perishes, uh, excuse me, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, it's valuable, it's a valuable thing to make promises But it's even better to know that you can fulfill those promises. It's a valuable thing to make promises, but it's even better to know that you can fulfill those promises. And not only that, but that the one making the promise will be good on their word. The last razor you'll ever buy. Have you heard that promise before? Burger King says, you can have it your way. Can I really? Maybe there's a limit to what I can have. Sometimes I remind my kids, this house is not Burger King. You can't have it your way. Uh, It's important for us to remind our children of that from time to time. Here's another quote. The concept is interesting and well-formed, but in order to earn better than a C... The idea must be feasible. That was a Yale University management professor dismissing the idea of a reliable overnight delivery service. But in 1985, UPS began its next day delivery service. We have a friend who works at UPS, and he was helpful actually in the last week. I called him and said, hey, we really need something that was supposed to be dropped off, and we missed it. Could you send him back? And he did it. It's, it's, it's good to know people in high places. We got the package in time. In 1985, UPS began its next day delivery service, and in 2020, it reported over $100 billion in revenue. And their profit was just over $13 billion the same year. It's a valuable thing to make promises, but even better to know that you can fulfill those promises. 
Maybe you've seen one of those shopping shows online late at night, which, by the way, you should never buy any of that stuff. Uh, recently, I saw a video, uh, one of those commercials. Uh, it was an old recording for probably 1985. And the guy was describing this really cool kind of multi-directional ladder that you could set up in your living room and you could go high or you could set it up kind of like a tabletop and you could crawl across it for whatever reason you might need to do that. And he says, it's really great. It's super safe. You lock it in and it's totally secure. Let me show you. And he gets up on this thing and he begins to crawl out into the middle of the ladder contraption and smack, he falls right on his face, out of screen. You can't even see him in the picture anymore. And this is what he says after some moans and groans and his co-host, you know, with some sounds of concern. He says this, it's totally safe and you should continue to call for it. Uh, And then it cuts to the next scene. Now, he promised something that no one was going to take him up on after that, right? It's a valuable thing to make promises, but even better to know that you can fulfill those promises. And in 1 Peter, Peter is reminding God's people of promises made and promises kept. And that's important because Peter and those that evangelized the saints in 1 Peter in the first century made some massive promises. They told them, turn from your sin. Turn from your false gods. Turn from your love of self. Turn to Christ who died in your place and rose again and ascended to the Father. And if you will repent and turn from your sin and only believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and you will receive joy inexpressible. And one day you will obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul and even of your body. And as the temperature began to rise and persecution heated up, you know that there were saints who started to think, is this really worth dying for? Not only that, is this really worth suffering for? Is this really worth losing my job over, my family over, my friends, my reputation in the community? Because I say that there is one Lord and Master of all. Is it worth it? And Peter sets out to remind them it is absolutely worth it. The promises are true. God will fulfill all that he has promised in his word. And deep down, as humans, we all doubt, right? When people make big promises to us, there's always a a little bit, if not a lot, of suspicion, of concern. Will this person do what they said? I'm tempted to not believe you, but I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. We'll see what happens. We know that we can be deceived, and that's why We wonder. We wonder when someone makes a great promise, are they tricking me? Are you fooling me? Are you trying to to trick me here? Because I don't want to be fooled. But not only that, we can be self-deceived, which is even worse. First John alludes to that. John points out in his first letter that we can be so self-deceived that we might even say to ourselves and to others and to God, We do not have sin. And so if someone asks you in a conflict or something, is there anything that you've done to contribute to the the difficulty, to to the sin, to the trial? We should always be able to say, well, probably something. There's probably some way in which I responded wrongly or I thought wrongly or sinfully. But if we're ever at the place where we're saying, no, no, I'm sinless. We have been so deceived by our sin. And so, these believers that Peter is writing to, they had promises made to them, whether by Peter or others that were beginning to encounter various trials, as verse 6 says, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. These believers had promises made to them and began probably to wonder if those who had evangelized them really knew what they were talking about. 
Is it really better? And certainly those that you're sharing Christ with are wondering. They might have those same doubts. Hey, I hear what you're saying. It sounds really good. My sins can be forgiven. But is it going to make my life better? Is it going to fix my marriage? Is it going to give me a better paycheck? Come on, what are you offering here? Is it going to help me now? They're asking those questions. And they're wondering if you're telling them the truth. And things would go very badly for some of these believers. Very badly. And so Peter writes this letter. A disciple turned apostle to encourage them of the hope that they have in Christ who can make great promises and fulfill them. And here in 1 Peter, in our text this morning, he praises God for the worth of their salvation. And goes on to help them learn to look on the rich blessings of their salvation when they're tempted to fixate on their trials. Because that's exactly what we are prone to do. A trial rises up and we fixate on that. But what we need, what we need by God's kind, sovereign, gracious hand is to lift our eyes to our great hope, to the worth of our salvation. And that is what we must all do. And so in this kind of funny little text of 1 Peter, uh, that's exactly what I hope that we will see from this text. The main idea could be summed up like this. We ought to be amazed at the greatness of the salvation that was promised to us. And that this greatness is shown by the fact that the prophets of God and the angels have longed to look into it and that it is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Now I know that was a a mouthful. But what I want to show you this morning is five reasons for why your salvation is so great. Five reasons for why your salvation is so great in order that you will have sustained confidence in God's promises in the face of temptation to doubt. Five reasons for why your salvation is so great in order that you may have sustained confidence in God's promises in the face of temptation and doubt. And the result, brothers and sisters, the result of rejoicing and fixing our eyes on this salvation is that we will be thankful even in the midst and in the face of suffering. So, what is the first reason that Peter gives in our text for why your salvation is so great? The first reason is this. Number one, our salvation was inquired of by the prophets. Our salvation was inquired of by the prophets. Now, the reason that I say this is kind of a funny little text is because uh, logically, you would think if you were just reading through 1 Peter that he would go from verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, therefore, verse 13, preparing your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That makes a lot of sense logically, but what Peter does is, is he kind of breaks out this little section. He says, now concerning this salvation, let me give you some, some nuggets of truth, even historically, that will help you, that will solidify your hope in this salvation that will cause you to rejoice even greater in your salvation so that when it comes time to obey, you will have that much more ammunition against the temptations to disobedience so that you will please the Lord. And so, first, our salvation was inquired of by the prophets. Now, how is this a picture of our great salvation. Well, the link between verses 9 and 10, just just look at 9 and 10 there, and let's just see if we can see it together. We'll just read verse 9 and 10. What is the link? What is the word link of verses 9 and 10? This is important for Bible study, looking for themes that repeat themselves, words that repeat themselves in the text. Obtaining, verse 9, the outcome of of your faith, the salvation of your souls concerning 
this salvation. Did you see it? The prophets who prophesied about it, about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. The link in verses 9 and 10 is the word salvation. The salvation believers experience now, which will be consummated in the future, Peter says, was prophesied in the past. Now, just think about that for a moment. Hundreds of you in this room are saved. You love the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe that He is the only God of the universe. You believe that He is the only Savior. You believe that there is no under name under heaven by which man can be saved. And it is that belief, that very fact that you believe that was prophesied hundreds of years before the Savior ever came to purchase sinners for Himself. That's amazing. That is wonderful. Unbelievable. And Peter says that believers in Christ represent the fulfillment of prophecy. Unbelievable. And Peter says that they enjoy, these believers, these saints that, were, that, were, that are the fulfillment of prophecy, enjoy the great privilege of living in the days when the history of salvation is being fulfilled. That's remarkable. And what Peter says is that the prophets... Oh, they longed to see it. They weren't just longing for the people of Israel to be rescued from their oppressors, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but they longed to see the fulfillment of the Messiah coming to rescue people from every tribe and tongue and nation for His glory. That's what they longed to see. Look at verse 10 and 11. It says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be Whose? Yours. They searched and inquired carefully. Verse 11, inquiring or seeking what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. The prophets who prophesied, they searched and they inquired carefully about this grace that was to be yours. Christians in the dispersion of Cappadocia and Asia and Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, the the grace that was to be yours, the prophets inquired about. In other words, seven centuries, you could say, when you think about the prophet Isaiah, maybe the most famous prophet, Seven centuries, that's 700 years before the incarnation, the Spirit of Christ, the text says, or the Holy Spirit, came to the prophet Isaiah, and what did he tell him? What did he tell him? This is what the, pro- this is what the Spirit of Christ, which is fascinating, a fascinating phrase, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of Christ told the prophets this, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, that the Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that we uh, that made us whole. And with his stripes we are healed, and we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, Isaiah ministered in Judah, Israel, Judah, the lower kingdom, over a period of nearly 50 years from King Uzziah's death in 739 B.C. to the time of King Manasseh's reign in 686 B.C. And so we know that the prophet Isaiah was speaking to the people of Judah But what is Peter saying here? Who is Peter saying that the prophets were speaking about, at least in part, at least in fulfillment of this prophecy? It included certainly those who would believe in Judah, but in the ages to come, those who would believe the gospel of grace. Like the people that Peter was writing to, and like people like you and me. 
And so just imagine how thrilled Isaiah would have been to read the Gospel of John or the book of Matthew because he was searching and inquiring to know the when and the how because that's exactly what it says. He was inquiring. They were inquiring. They were seeking carefully what person or time or circumstances the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. He was searching to know when the Messiah would come to do his work of redemption. Imagine how thrilled he would have been to sit in a multi-ethnic church service in the first century. Or to have been at Pentecost to see salvation coming to the nations. Good grief, how sweet that would have been for the prophets who are just searching the scriptures and the things that have been revealed to them and, and looking and longing to find the Messiah. How sweet it would have been for them. How precious the salvation was to them. That's what we need to remember about the prophets. When we read the prophets, they were longing, they were anticipating, they were looking for the Messiah. Because... The gospel of grace was precious to them. He says the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. They weren't just prophesying about events and situations and people's names and places, but they were prophesying about grace. Sinners receiving what they do not deserve. Sinners being lavished with riches and treasures in forgiveness and compassion and mercy and patience before a holy God. How precious this was to them. So precious that they inquired how and when and where is he? What a precious salvation we have. So that is the first reason that our, great, our salvation is so great. The first reminder from Peter about why your salvation is so great. Because it didn't just happen. It was prophesied by the prophets hundreds of years before. But what else? Number two. Second reason for why our salvation is so great. Our salvation was planned, number two, was planned by Christ in eternity. Our salvation was planned by Christ in eternity. That's just a staggering sentence to utter. Look at verse 11. The Spirit of Christ within them, within the prophets, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Our salvation was planned by Christ in eternity. In eternity past. Not only for seven centuries before with the prophets, but it was planned and predicted, and it was specifically planned by Christ from eternity past. Christ had a plan to save sinners like you and me in eternity past. And that message was given to the prophets of Israel, the Spirit of Christ was within them. <clears throat> if you've ever wondered what the Spirit was doing in the Old Testament, this is part of what the role of the Holy Spirit was in the Old Testament. He was in, within the prophets, speaking to them so that they were speaking forth or foretelling the things for God's people and things that would come in the future. And the text says that Christ's Spirit, look again at verse 11, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, uh, sorry, verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. Christ's Spirit was indicating the sufferings of, of Christ. Did you hear that? The Spirit of Christ was indicating in them the sufferings of Christ. To the prophets. In other words, for example, the Spirit of Christ told Isaiah in chapter 53 that he would suffer for the sake of sinners like us. And as our brother read a couple of weeks ago, that he would be crushed for our iniquities. 
This is exactly what the Spirit of Christ was telling the prophets to say about Christ. In other words, the prophets speaking these things was not the, the origin of these things. It was Christ. It was Christ. And since the mind of God, and so again, here's the point. Our salvation was planned by Christ in eternity past. Since the mind of God is infinite and eternal, and so is Christ, because Christ is the uncreated God, so has the plan of salvation been made from eternity past. And again, hundreds of souls in this room are saved because of an infinitely eternal plan. Do you see it? Can you believe that? It's remarkable. The sufferings of crucifixion, Peter says, and the glories of resurrection have been contemplated in the mind of God as far back as you can think and as far back into eternity past as the mind of God can go, which is forever. It's unbelievable. That is amazing. And this is the greatest news in the world. Peter says they were inquiring And what were they inquiring about? What were they looking for? What were they longing for? What were they saying? How long, O Lord, about, but about the sufferings and the subsequent glories, the sufferings of the cross and the glories of resurrection. Not only that, but this is the greatest answer to the problem of sin, is it not? The problem of suffering and evil in the world, the triune God. If someone asks you, how can a God be good and allow suffering and sin to exist in this world? And your answer can be, it's really difficult to understand, isn't it? But the greatest suffering, the greatest evil, the greatest injustice was inflicted upon God himself by and through God himself in the place of sinners like you and me. It's unthinkable. It's unbelievable. That is the most profound answer in the world to that question. The triune God ordained that a world in which sin would exist, He ordained that world so that sinners would be saved by grace. And God would, be, God would magnify Himself as merciful and forgiving and gracious and just. And all of that takes place more in a world where there is sin and suffering than in a world without it. God's mercy, magnified. God's wrath, magnified. God's compassion and patience, magnified in a world like what we live in. Amazing sovereignty. So that's the second, that's the second reason for why our salvation is so great in this text, according to Peter. Our salvation was planned by Christ in eternity past. Third, the prophets... Here's the the third reason why our salvation is so great and that you can have confidence so that you have confidence in God's promises. It's this. The prophets did not serve themselves, but us. Think about the great prophets of old. Uh, These were mighty men. God raised up mighty, godly men to serve the people of God. And they did not serve themselves, but they served, Peter says, us. Do you see it in the text? Look at, look at the verses with me. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were, not ser- they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. The prophets did not serve themselves, but us when they foretold the coming of the Messiah. 
Now, a good question, a good question to ask of this text is, and, and we've all asked the question, how much did the prophets know? You know, they're, they're prophesying about things to come. What, did they, what details did they know? I asked a brother this weekend, I said, as you read this text, what questions come to mind when you read this text? And he said, uh, what was the limit to what the prophets understood about what they were saying? And that's a really great question. How much of what the Old Testament prophets, prophets prophesied did they understand, or the apostles? What did they know about, uh, about what they said of future things? Did they speak better than they knew? Or were they just kind of spiritual robots just spitting out, you know, whatever kind of came their way, whatever came through? Look at what Peter says in verse 12 again. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Key word. It was revealed to them that they and their prophesying of the Messiah, of the sufferings and the glories to come, were not serving themselves, but you and me. I mean, the, the most important thing for them to know was that a Messiah was coming to suffer and to be glorified on behalf of sinners like you and me. It was revealed to them. They understood that what they were prophesying was about grace to come, about a Savior who would save so the, the answer, you know, the question, what does Peter say they knew? Well, they understood what they were prophesying about, namely that the Messiah would come and that they were not merely serving their own generation, a rebellious one at that, Israel, who is still, by the way, in rebellion as a nation, as a people group, who will be restored and redeemed one day. Israelites will be saved and they will be a blessing to the nations in the kingdom to come. They were not serving merely their own generation, but believers hundreds of years in the future. That is Peter's hearers. They were serving saints to come. And now us gathered in this place hearing about the salvation of souls that is in Christ alone. That's what they understood. They understood all of that. And we know that the forward-telling ministry of the prophets had them, uh, they, they had with them a significant person in their minds. Look at what the text says. It says, uh, it was revealed to them, uh, excuse me, verse 11, inquiring what person or what time, or you might say circumstances, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. There was a person that they were thinking of, that they were looking for. There were circumstances that they were anticipating, that they had in their minds. And it's, and it's been said that they wrote with a specific messianic hope, that is, about the Messiah, in mind. They wrote with this hope in mind, and this passage is inspired affirmation that the Old Testament prophets wrote with a hope about a personal Messiah and Savior. And Peter, the writer of 1 Peter, said in Acts chapter 2, listen to this, verse 30 and 31, that David was a prophet who looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Peter looked ahead, or, uh, David looked ahead as a prophet and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. And you can go and look at that text, Acts chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. But Peter believed that David had a specific messianic hope and could write concerning the experiences of this coming Messiah. And that's exactly what he was doing. And the Spirit of Christ said to Isaiah... As we, as we think about the prophet Isaiah, as another has said, he said this, Isaiah, think, think, just kind of think a little creatively here. Imagine what Isaiah would have been dealing with, kind of wrestling with internally as he's looking for the who and the what and the when and the where and all of this. Isaiah, be patient. You're not serving yourself nor merely this generation. You are serving saints Hundreds of years from now. And this is how this author puts it. 
they will see in your prophecy of me the proof that I am who I say I am. And its truth will make its infinitely, infinite value unshakable in their lives and you will have not lived in vain. Because guess what? Isaiah's ministry was pretty terrible at times. Remember that? Imagine being a pastor preaching to people who didn't give a rip about what they were saying. And to some degree, that was Isaiah's ministry. Go and preach, and they're not going to listen. Their, their ears are going to be stopped up until the Lord works. But it was, it was, in many ways, a very difficult ministry, a, what might have seemed like a very vain ministry. But it wasn't, because he wasn't serving himself, nor only that, uh, not only that generation either, but generations to come who would believe. But here's the thing I want to kind of drill down on for our application today. The prophets were people just like you and me. They were sinners just like you and me. They were finite people just like you and me. Some was revealed to them about the Messiah, that they were anticipating a personal Messiah. There was hope in a personal Savior who was going to come to save people for himself. But they had questions. And they wondered about the details of these prophecies. And what did they do? They sought the Lord. They, they inquired of the text. They inquired of the words that they were speaking that had been given to them. And I wonder, do you search the Scriptures? Do you and I inquire of the text? Do we read the Bible seeking to know, God, who are you? What have you done in history and what are you going to do in the future to glorify yourself? And what are the circumstances in your life that God is working to magnify himself? Do you seek the Lord so that a coming generation might know him too? You don't just seek the Lord for yourself, but for your children and for your junior high students and your small group and in your adventure club group and in your seniors group. You don't just seek the Lord for yourself, but you are seeking to make Him known, not as a prophet, but with the same intensity. That's what we're to do. Or do you scoff at those who are diligent? Do you kind of think, those, those super spiritual people, you know, I'm really busy, but you know, I don't got time for that like they do. Wait a second. We all have the same amount of hours in the day. God has given us his word, and it is the greatest treasure in the world. Church, are we seeking him? Are we seeking to know him? What is it that's getting in the way of us getting to know him better so that we can make him known to the lost world around us? Some of you might say, well, I can never, be in a, I can never share the gospel with my neighbor. It's too hard. It's too scary. It's too difficult. If you know this Savior that the prophets spoke of, you will know that he is worthy to be mocked over, to be shunned for, to endure a little bit of embarrassment for. But if you do not seek him, he will not be precious to you. Church, let's seek him. Let's not be complacent. Do we know him better than we did a year ago? Psalm 27, verse 8. We just looked at this in our Fundamentals of the Faith class. The Lord has said, seek my face. Hear this, church. Seek my face. And my heart says to you, Lord, does our heart say this to him? Your face, Yahweh, your face, Lord, do I seek. Do you seek his face? Or... Are we too consumed with Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or YouTube? Right? We can all probably raise our hands. Are we too consumed with our hobbies, our projects, our work? I realize those are real things that we have to do. We have to work a job. We must provide for our families. You must raise your children, mothers, and it is a glorious task. But you must seek His face if you want to endure with joy. Number four, the angels. The number four reason that our salvation is so great. Uh, number four reason for why our salvation is so great 
that gives us confidence in God's promises, even in the face of trials and suffering, is this, that the angels stoop to see our salvation. This is what Peter says next that highlights the worth of our salvation. Look at verse 12 at the end. Verse 12 at the end. Look at your Bible. He says this. Things, this salvation, things into which angels long to look. The angels stoop to see our salvation. Now, angels are fascinating, aren't they? We, we wonder about angels all the time. What do they look like? Where are they? Uh, are they in this room right now? Do I have my own angel? Uh, I would just say probably not. That's my short answer for that, your own guardian angel kind of thing. We can talk about that later. Uh, uh, what about fallen angels uh, and, and holy angels? What do we know about them? Well, angels are fascinating. But not only do they have a will to worship, right, because some sinned and rebelled in the beginning and went and, went and are part of the, the, the hordes of uh, Satan's angels. They have a will to worship God. Hebrews 1.6 says, let all of the angels worship him. But Peter, he also tells us that they have a strong desire. He says, things into which angels long to look or desire to look. And not only that, but to look into, to, to look, to go beside, to, to look around, to look over, to look into something. And the things are the things about the salvation that we possess. Look again what he says. He says, things into which angels long to look. What are the things? They're the things about this salvation that is so great that they long to look into that we possess. And even though they heralded the Messiah's birth and worship in His presence day by day and do His biddings, they do not share or know the same joy that we do as Christ's sons and daughters. That Christ would die for us. Angels say, what is this? I mean, this is amazing. Who would die for those people? Look at them. They're horrible, right? I mean, in our sin, we are. Who would die for these? How could it be? But oh, it says how they stoop. They, they look into this salvation. Just think, in eternity, on this new earth, in the presence of the triune God, we will sit and speak of things that will make angels Fold their wings. Just sit down for a moment. Pause for a moment to listen in. Wow, that's how God saved you? That's remarkable. Oh, the forgiveness that He lavished upon you. Unbelievable. Oh, what sweet peace you have with God, having been His enemy and now His friend and His child. Amazing. What a day that will be. Angels stoop to see our salvation. They've never experienced forgiveness, mercy, compassion, patience. These holy angels. But what do the angels have that we must have as well? The angels get excited about this salvation. They long, they desire epithumia. They, they crave after to see what this salvation is. They want to know. They want to see the glory of God in, in salvation stories, in baptism testimonies. They long to look. They're so fascinated for the glory of God. And the question is, are you and I, are we fascinated by God? Are we excited about our salvation? Are you? Or are you just going kind to of like, meh, yeah, I'm a Christian, it's okay. Or are you thrilled? When was the last time you were thrilled at the mercy of God lavished upon you? When was the last time you confessed your sin and, and you saw forgiveness uh, brought about in a relationship and you enjoyed that restoration? You said, Lord, who am I that I should be forgiven by you and by this Sweet person in front of me, who am I? Do you know this salvation? Do you know it? 
that angels exist, at least in part, to adore and to admire and wonder at. Do you know this salvation? And how much more should we be thankful for our salvation and seek to work it out day by day with fear and trembling if the angels seek it out as well? Finally, lastly, our salvation is Trinitarian. Our salvation is Trinitarian, and we see that in this text, and it is glorious. Our salvation is Trinitarian. It was planned in eternity past. It was carried out through the Son, and it is sustained by the Spirit, Father, Son, Spirit. The three-in-one salvation belongs to a triune God. Look at verse 5. We see the Father. We are who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power has saved us. And it's ready to be revealed at the last time. And then verse 11, we see the Son. Oh, the Son, verse 11. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Christ who was with the Father in eternity. John chapter 1. The Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And then we see the Spirit in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves. And then he says, These things have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Our salvation is a comes through a gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven to you. And it has been announced to you through those who preach the gospel. And this is what is happening right now. The gospel is being proclaimed to you. First Peter Chapter 2, verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. Peter's saying, this is what's being announced to you right now. What have we been saved from? He says, for by His wounds you were healed. We were saved from our sin to live to righteousness. What What else are the things that are announced through this Trinitarian salvation by the Spirit of God. 1 Peter 3.18, he says, Christ also died for sins once for all the righteous, for the unrighteous, in order that He might bring us to God. Christ died for our sins that, uh, because we need to be saved from our sins. They separate us from God. And so Christ died for our sins to bring us home to God. 1 Peter 4.17, he says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. We need to be saved from judgment. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, to devour. We need to be saved from Satan himself who is dangerous. And these holy angels, they they stand on tippy-toe to see the work of God in saving sinners from their sin, from His judgment, from Satan. They are wondering about this room even now. I wonder if those who don't believe will be saved today. I wonder if they will come to the Messiah, if they will come to Jesus and lay themselves down before Him and say, Lord, save me. Make me new. I'm a sinner. I need saving. I'm a slave to Satan. Make me new. But also for you saints. Will you marvel at and rejoice in your salvation? Today will you commit to to know the Lord. To seek His face. Because He is worthy. And so Peter's answer to what we must be saved from and what we have been saved to is that we've been saved from the guilt and disease of sin, the judgment of God and the destruction of Satan. And my prayer is that you would see and that you would savor and be saved from the wrath of God to come 
and that you would grow in gratitude, dear Christian, for your salvation after looking at this text. The gospel and salvation that have been announced to you and us is right in the pages of Scripture. Church, if there is no wonder in our soul and no delight in our hearts about this salvation, then the response of Jesus is, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must go to the book where these things are announced. And you must be born again. But if you, like the angels, marvel at the gospel and wonder at your salvation and treasure it, then you must go on rejoicing in it, fixing your heart and mind on it, because it is the only thing that will sustain your hope in the midst of suffering and trials that will surely come, as they were for Peter's readers. Let's pray together. And as I pray, the men will gather in the back to serve us in the Lord's table. And men, you could even, as soon as you gather, make your way down. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious gospel we have received. We were continually straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. You are a shepherd. You are a guardian. You are one who keeps safe those whom he saves. And we bless you for that. But your word says that when the chief shepherd appears at your second coming, you will receive, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. Honor and joy forever is coming. First Peter tells us that the God of all grace has called us to this eternal glory in Christ. What an amazing truth. We're saved to share in the glory of Christ. And the result is everlasting joy. Lord, intensify our gratitude and fill us with joy and worship for the infinite value and worth of your salvation. Lord, help us to not be complacent. Help us to marvel at our redemption, at the grace that has been brought to us through the sufferings and the glories of Christ. May you sustain our our souls, Lord, help our hearts as we endure trials of various kinds, various kinds, some great, some small, trial nonetheless. Lord, sustain us by helping us to keep looking back to the plan of redemption to save sinners like us. And may we rejoice in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.